Will you please welcome to the stage our guest moderator, news editor of Empire magazine, and part of the presenting team on BBC's Film 2012, Chris Hewitt. Everyone, thanks for coming. In the uh, Barsoom series, which is Edgar Rice Burroughs' classic space fantasy stories, a Civil War veteran is transported to Mars and becomes a legendary hero. Many directors have tried to bring this to the big screen, Many directors have failed, but Pixar legend Andrew Stanton has succeeded with John Carter and a right rollicking ride it is as well. Before we meet the man himself, let's take a look at the trailer. Let them be crushed. Fantastic stuff. Now, please welcome the man who brought us Finding Nemo and Wally, and now he's the director of John Carter, Mr. Andrew Stanton. Before we get too started, uh, at Pixar, Steve designed how the theater looked, and he found these chairs he loved and this gray rug he loved. Uh -huh. And then after he liked that so much, he had that put in every Apple store. So you're sitting in a replica <laughs> of the Pixar theater. Wow. A lot of people don't know that. That's so, pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool, indeed. Um, and you actually dedicated the movie to Steve Jobs, didn't you? I did, yeah. Well, you know, I worked with him for 15, uh, 18 years. Uh -huh. um, you know, I owe my entire career. Everybody at Pixar does. You know, everything we've learned and that we have jobs and families and stuff. It, you know, it was just a massive influence on every level. So we were the first movie up since his passing, and it just felt like the uh, honorable thing to do. Absolutely. Even as he moved away from Pixar, did you keep in touch with him creatively? Did you ever ask him about films and well, yeah, places you were mean, making? I mean, but to be honest, once he, he sold us to Disney in around, what is it, 2006, 7? I mean, it was, you're seeing the results of it, you know, the iPhone, the iPad. I mean, it was all, all on for him uh, with Apple. So. Absolutely. Now, John Carter is something of a, a lifelong dream for you. Isn't it? Yeah, I read the book when I was uh, 10 or 11, 1976, showing my age. <laughs> and um, 
I just was kind of smitten with this, this 1912 story that really felt like this romantic adventure from turn of the century. Mm -hmm. And it felt like a tourist that had uh, gone to some uh, country or continent and found some culture we didn't know about and documented it at all. And you really felt like you, somebody went there and you just wanted to go there. And so then like about eight months later, Star Wars came out and I'm seeing like these worlds and movies after that that felt like you really could go there. So I just felt like there was this promise from then on that we were going to get to see this book yeah. on the screen. I've been waiting 36 years for that. <laughs> and so it, it really has, I've spent most of my life as a fan just waiting for, for somebody to put it on the screen. But was there a part of you that maybe thought, well, as, as film adaptations were, were tried, various directors came on and tried to make John Carter, at some point were you thinking, well, I actually kind of hope they fail because one day I'd quite like to take no, a No, I never had the, <laughs> the, the guts to think that I, that I could do it. I, I, I just, I was just so crestfallen. Like, I mean, there, it went through three directors in about the span of two years in the middle of the 2000s. And so I, and, and I, because, you know, even though we work in San Francisco, we don't work in Hollywood, you know, everybody's one or two separations away from other artists that works on movies. So we were hearing like how well it was going, how well it wasn't going. And so there would be these little moments where I'd go, oh, it's gonna get made, it's gonna get made, and then it would fall apart. And yeah. then it would gonna go. And so uh, Favreau had it and, and it almost got greenlit. Mm. And I was like, it's finally gonna happen. I'm yeah. finally gonna get to see this thing. So when that fell apart for a third time, I just lost almost all hope. I was, I was just like, this is never going to happen in my lifetime. I'm never going to get to see this. So how come we're here? How to come you well, actually got it made? Uh, serendipitously, about a week later, I'm on the phone with the head of Disney, just happened to be talking about Wally. I was two years away from finishing Wally. I was deep in that movie. And I said, you know, I just heard this property, this book, A Princess of Mars, just went back to the estate. I really think you guys should make it. I think it's a missed opportunity. I think it's this grand, timeless, mythic adventure in the spirit of things like 20,000 uh, Leagues Under the Sea and Swiss Family Robinson. I just feel like it's right in your wheelhouse, or at least of the legacy of Disney. I think you should make a movie like this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 I really mean it. Like, I mean it so much that, like, even, like, if you, if, if you haven't done it and I'm finished Wally two years from now, I'll, I'll throw my hat in the ring just yeah, to show yeah. you how serious I am. And that's where you have to be careful what you wish for because <laughs> a month later, they called and said, we got the rights to the books. Do you want to do you want to do it? And, okay. and, and it was really the fan in me. I'm like, the filmmaker in me was like, oh, my gosh. But the fan in me was like, this may be the only way to get it to the screen, so say yes. Okay, because you've had images in your head, then, presumably since you were 11 years old. Yeah, I've always pictured it as real. I always pictured it as what would it really be like. Yeah. I always pictured it like a history film. Like, you know, we all have films where, okay, we get to go back and see what it might have been like in ancient Egypt or, you know, feudal Japan or, or ancient China. And... I, I just wanted that. I wanted, I wanted a period film. I wanted a, a, a costume drama. I wanted it to feel like we accurately documented Martian history. <laughs> and that's, that's, what we, that's what we went for with the film. So that's one of the big reasons why this isn't an animated film. You didn't want, because obviously given your there's background, this assumption you, would, you would expect that. that. Yeah, there's, yeah assumption. there's this assumption that because I'm in animation that I like things because they're animated. <laughs> um, and that's, that's uh, to be truthful, I, I like things because they're good stories or good movies, and I like it when they're paired well with the right medium. So I love it when the right story is matched with animation, the right story is matched with live action, or, the, or nowadays the right story is matched with some kind of hybrid of how to use all these mediums. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, I've always been story driven. It's not, I've never been driven by the medium, it's not a career move that I'm dying to be in live action. I was just dying to see this story 
personified the way I always pictured it. Pixar are, are famous for breaking down stories and you know, changing things at the last minute and making sure everything works perfectly. Yeah. When you started to break the story of John Carter down, did you realize why it had taken so long to, to bring to the big screen? Were there, were there any inherent problems? Story-wise, no. I, th I mean, it, it had the problems. It, it, it had no greater or lesser problems than any book being adapted to the, mo to the screen. You know, it, 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 couldn't, it needed to be condensed to a two-hour structure. Um, and, it, you know, it just needed to pull out the things that best told it in the guise of a movie. You know, you can't directly put a play to the screen. You can't directly put a movie to a play. You have to do a certain amount of adaptation. The big thing that I think why it has never been done is because to realize it, because it's so dense, it's got so much specificity to it, to the world, to realize all the things that Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author, had described, I don't think anybody technically knew how they could do it, in, even though they tried it between the 30s all the way to the 2000s. I yeah. just think everybody that tried was like, how exactly would we execute this? And it would just, <laughs> it would just either they couldn't figure it out or it would just be way too expensive. It would just be not worth doing. And so it wasn't until you saw the computer graphics being mastered and being used in movies that we all take for granted now, like you know, episode one and, 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 and Lord of the Rings, Matrix, you're starting to see more and more the computer be utilized and just found different ways of being uh, used to, be, to see these fantastical ideas and worlds, that uh, that's why you suddenly saw all these directors be attached. They started to say, oh, you could realize this world. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, um, honestly, it's not until the back half of the 2000s that you could economically do it in some technical way that uh, could fit into a box that people would, would uh, be willing to make it. Interesting. I, I, for people who don't know the Barsim series or or who and what John Carter is. Yeah. Can, can you tell him? Can you set him up? Um, yeah, it's, um, again, it's a book that was written 100 years ago called A Princess of Mars, and it was written by an author named Edgar Rice Burroughs who wrote all the Tarzan books. Everybody seems to know Tarzan, <laughs> and that went way off into the stratosphere and made him a very rich man. But concurrently, and before that, he wrote this series, there was 11 books, about a man named John Carter, who was a Civil War vet <laughs> who found himself mysteriously on the surface of Mars and only to find out that there was an entire civilizations and, and history that had been going on concurrently the whole time as on Earth and found out that he was crucial to a key to the world uh, surviving. And um, this has inspired, you know, you're talking 1912, it's inspired Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, Superman, gone all the way to the modern day with Star Wars and Avatar. It's inspired a ton of things. It's sort of the, one of the Rosetta Stones of, of what you would consider sci-fi. But I almost feel like sci-fi is a little misnomer. It's really fantasy adventure. It's, it's, it's epic romance and travel. It's, it's way more that than it is anything about space and aliens. Yeah. And that's what I loved about it, is I felt like we were traveling to an exotic land. It was really for the adventurer in you. It really felt like somebody that wanted to just find one more continent that hadn't been discovered on our world and just travel to there. <laughs> that's really what it feels like, and that's what I loved about it, and that's what I wanted the movie to feel like. Fantastic. And now we know who John Carter is, we should probably be meeting him. Uh, this, this first clip is the one with uh, Matai Shang and the... Uh, the uh, yeah, this is... Um, it's a little bit of a tease. This is uh, 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 them uh, discovering uh, a way for Carter to get back to Earth and then hitting this obstacle. And then I'm purposely cutting it off before it really gets good <laughs> because it goes into what would be a major spoiler if you knew it before you saw the movie. So I apologize if this seems limiting, but I, it's really so that you won't be spoiled when you see the movie. The point so. is to wet the appetite. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Roll the clip if you can. Thank you.
shot. Pursue them to the Aeolian plane, then overtake them and capture the Red Woman alive. The one who jumps? Let's see what he's capable of. The one thing he discovers for being on Mars is that his bone density is different just like it would be going onto the moon, and that he can leap big bounds. And, uh, and that's it. That's the only special extra thing he's got other than his own <laughs> wits and personality. But. Fantastic. I mean, um, there's a lot to talk about in terms of that clip. First of all, John Carter himself, played by Taylor Kitsch. Now, it's interesting, but he's been up and coming for a long, long time now but he's still something of an unknown. Yeah. Did, you, did you purposely want... Absolutely. When I go to a movie, know? especially when you're going for these kind of iconic mythic characters that are hopefully setting off uh, a legacy, if you're lucky, then you want to believe that they're that character. Yeah. So I wanted as many you know, people to play these iconic roles that I would just invest in right away. Because uh, we had things like these, one of the races on this planet are these nine to 10 foot tall creatures with forearms. You saw one of them there, Sola. Um, and with Tusk, um, two of the leads in this movie are these fantastical creatures. Yeah. And that was all the part of the reason I thought this movie couldn't be done any sooner, is that they had to be just as effective in a calm, quiet, talking moment, and you believe them like you and I are talking, yeah. but one of them technically is ultimately a CG character and one of them's live action. But to get that kind of believable performance, I needed the best actors I could. So I tried to get the best actors I could find, like Willem Dafoe and Samantha Morton, to play these leads. And they were, they were really there on the set, in the scene, playing the role. And when they stood, they were on stilts. They had camera <laughs> rigs on them to see their faces. So they felt like they had tusks. They had mocap suits on. Yeah. But they were really out in the desert with them talking. And they felt like they were nine feet tall. And they were, everybody was looking where they were. And they were really acting off each other. There was no acting against tennis balls or green walls or anything like that. And uh, that was the desire, was to get the best actors I could surround around with these sort of up and coming uh, people that maybe not everybody recognized from other properties, uh, other films, for like Taylor Kitsch and Lynn Collins. I really wanted you to believe they were just Carter and Deja. Absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned that people were on set, uh, not, or, or on location rather, because there is a lot of great set work in this, or there's a lot of great green screen work in this as well, but it is that you shot in Utah. Whenever we, could, went out there. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever we could, we built the set or we went to the location. Mm. Um, we couldn't always, but most of the time we could. I mean, I, I have this, I can't speak for everybody else, but I'm very sensitive to when you see a live action movie and there's lots of CG work in it. And if there's too much on the screen, it feels a little cold, a little antiseptic. I feel like you get slightly removed. Even if you're not conscious of it, I just feel like there's a little bit of a distance. And I wanted as much warmth, as much... Uh, believability, as much authenticity, which means imperfectness, which means things being a little messy, and uh, just like if we were really there and shot it, you, you know, and um, there's a confidence you have when you're shooting something. If you've grown up your whole life with the Taj Mahal in your background, then you're going to stop framing it after a while, and you're going to start <laughs> going, okay, well, you know, you're interesting, and that's, that'll always be there. Yeah. But when people build all this work and all these fancy things in computer effects, they're just like, well, we've done all this work. We've got to show it. And it feels, that's what helps sadly part of the artifice part of the the fakery is that you just it, it's on this proscenium feel yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, you just want it to be disregarded because you just know it's there so when we were shooting with these out in utah with these maces that are you know f sometimes four times the size of this building you just 
the cameraman stopped worrying about it. It's just there, and I'm just going to pay attention to what the, what the acting is. Mm. And so you can just feel this sense of believability that we're really there, because we were. Mm. And so what we decided is like, well, how do we show these big ruins and that this, 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 uh, this world is so old in the same way that you could go to parts of the Earth and know how this is the older part of Earth. You know, here's the pyramids against a highway or something. Um, we just said, well, if we pretend these geo, if we have these geographic big rock formations yeah. be the cities, then we'll just do a little bit of CG work. We'll add some windows. We'll we'll eat away a couple things. Add some you know little stairwells. Suddenly, the entire mesa flips and becomes a man-made ruin, and it's great because 80, 70 percent, 80 percent of your eye is seeing reality. And, and so that's what wins out, not the artifice, not the CG cold aspect of it. Okay. And you, but you also shot here as well. Well, we in shot England. in London, yeah. yeah. All our set work, most of it was done here over in, she in Shepparton yeah. and then a place called Long Cross. How was that? Fantastic. That's a, cold. I can't, say the, I can't say the catering is great in England. <laughs> oh, come on. Um, <laughs> but uh, the food is great in London. I always made sure I, I, I had my meals uh, at, after work here. I lived for three and a half months just around the corner up here in uh, just outside Shepherd's Market. Ah, so you sampled all our great restaurants, KFC, uh, Burger King, you uh, got, you yeah, got them all. Exactly, exactly. Um, but no, it was fantastic. I mean, to me, second to Hollywood as far as movie, uh, uh, you know, sort of lore, movie yeah. uh, history is England. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm a huge... Uh, Pal Pressburger fan, you know, I'm a huge Kubrick fan, I'm a huge Ridley Scott fan, and, and there's just so much history here. And, you know, one of the sets we shot on, one of the stages at, at Shepperton, uh, was where they did the moon uh, excavation scene for 2001, okay. where they shot some of the Millennium Falcons, where the Nostromo was for Alien. <laughs> I was geeking out. And honored to be using the same stage space, and you know, and that's, and I, I was like that anywhere we went, any yeah. whether it was outside or inside a set in England. So. Oh, fantastic! Um, one thing we should probably talk about in that clip as well was uh, the presence of Mark Strong yeah. as Matai Shang. Now, who yeah. is Matai Shang? Matai Shang is the leader of a race of uh, beings called Therns that are believed in ancient Martian um, history and religion to be the equivalent of angels that at long ago in the past, they were more openly uh, known among the civilization and guided you and helped you. And that's the most I want to give away. But, uh, <laughs> uh, usually when you see Mark Strong in a film, there's, you, you might imply that there's something villainous about that character. Do you want to... Um, he's, he's, um, well, he's not bad. He's... He's misunderstood. No, exactly. <laughs> he, he, um, he's an observer. He mm -hmm. has the disconnect that a scientist would have looking at an ant colony and figuring out how it works and maybe poking a stick at it to okay. see what the reaction might be. Okay. And he has infinite patience. I'll put it that way. Okay, fantastic. And uh, the film hinges as well on a relationship between John Carter and uh, Lynn Collins' Deja Thoris. Yes. And uh, I think in the next, this next clip we see a little bit more of that. Yeah, that was the attraction in the books was the love story between these two is that he fell in love with the most, what is described as the most beautiful woman in the universe. And their romance and their relationship evolves over all these 11 books that Edgar Rice Burroughs ultimately wrote. So um, this is um, just after he's saved her from uh, falling to her death. And um, they've been basically captured by this green man race. They're called the Tharks. And he's been honored for basically turning the tides of this air battle that's happened in the sky. 
and they're just trying to figure each other out. And suddenly she's, he doesn't even realize he's on a different planet till just now. So we're going to show this. What was that friends? Sun, then Rasu. Mercury. Then Kosu. Venus. Then Earth. Us. That is Jasum. You are on Barsoom, John Carter. Mars. I'm on Mars. Good God. I'm on Mars. So, now home is Jasum. And you came on one of your sailing ships across millions of carrots of empty space? No. Not like that. Go on. Shock me. How? All right. They're, um, they're fantastic together. They have an amazing chemistry that you can definitely see could go on and on for a wonderful series. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? uh, so how do you find the most beautiful woman in the universe? Oh, it's a tough job. But somebody's <laughs> got to do it. Um, I, I, I um, you know, auditioned and, and met with uh, almost every actor you can think of in every, uh, both uh, for the, the role of Carter and both for the role of Deja. Um, Taylor was on my radar for a while, to be honest, he was on a short list, but uh, Lynn wasn't, and she walked in and um, she doesn't have dark hair, she's got my kind of skins, and she, uh, and uh, she doesn't, and uh, she doesn't, she isn't British. And she walked in, tan, dark hair, fit, with a British accent, and I completely bought it, like close up in the room. Like she okay. completely fooled me. She's a fantastic actress. She's Juilliard trained, uh, tons of Shakespeare in her background. Mm -hmm. And uh, she came in and had a passion and a strength that just felt completely legitimate. It didn't feel put on. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like a role. It felt like a right. Yeah. And, and I couldn't forget her. Yeah. And uh, I was kind of, you know, you're always crossing your fingers that your first instinct is, is right, but just to prove that it is, you, you look at everybody else and you audition other people, but she got on, got on the short list, and the minute I saw her and Taylor on film together, uh, I had people come into the theater and watch the film clip, and they didn't know anybody from anybody, and they couldn't stop watching the yeah. two of them, and that's when I knew, yes, it's, it's those two. It's a real Tracy Hepburn yeah. kind of vibe going yeah, on yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thank you as well for making the most beautiful woman in the universe British. Yeah. That, that feels she good, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, the rest of the cast is all from here. Yeah. So, and she fooled everybody on set for the first week. Nobody knew that she was American. Was that a, a conscious choice back in the day? Because oh, I guess you knew that Kieran Hines and uh, this you know, is, the this is James Purefoy. This is the American in me showing. Yeah. I feel like anybody British can read the phone book and you'll, listen, and you'll, <laughs> and you'll, you'll find it interesting. Right, yeah. Um, but actually, the honest truth is I wanted the most consummate actors. I mean, and I also wanted the most theater trained, if I could, because... This was like, I kept saying, almost like Pulp Shakespeare. Yeah. It was, it was uh, stuff that could get really silly really easily if it wasn't really believed and, and authenticated and just um, committed to in the right way. And, and these guys really knew how to sort of navigate that. Mm. And uh, it also raised everybody's game. Yeah. Everybody had to be at their top game in acting because these guys are pros. They just, you can just airdrop them anywhere and they're yeah. just fantastic. So it's James Purifoy, Dominic West, Kieran Hines, uh, Mark Strong, as we've seen. Yep, Polly yeah, Polly Walker. Samantha Morton. Samantha Morton. Uh, yep. Interestingly, um, I, I don't think this is a spoiler, but in the end credits, David Schwimmer is credited. <laughs> well, there's, that come from? there's two cameos that you would never know. Uh, John Favreau, because he had to let this project go and went on to do Iron Man, which he, I'm sure we all benefited from. Um, 
basically uh, called me up after he found out it went uh, was going to go to me. Yeah. And he said, "Look, it, I, I'm so, totally sad that I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this project, but uh, if it's going to go to anybody, I'm glad it went to you. And I just have one request: Can I be a Thark?" <laughs> and I said, "Sure." So he shows up as one, you know, for a cameo moment as one of these green creatures. And then I found out through somebody during the during the post on the shoot that uh, David Schwimmer was. Uh, you find the most random fans that have grown up with these books the same way I have. Okay. And he always loved. Uh, these books as well, and so I gave him, you know, uh, one moment, one line in, in the film. I don't expect you to ever notice it, but it's just so <laughs> that he could kind of have that little private moment. So. You pointed out in the DVD commentary when the yeah, when the I don't want comes. to be ahead of time. We'll then, later. No spoilers, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no spoilers. Um, an interesting thing about the film as well is the character of John Carter himself, because he is quite damaged, isn't he? He's yeah. recovering from the death of his wife and yeah, his, yeah, his child. Yeah, um, in the books, because they're they're so old and they they were a little bit. Um, Archetype, you know, he was just the hero. I mean, he was a very noble hero, and he had great values, but he kind of had no change, and he was just kind of one note. And so was Deja. She was like, "Save me, save me." And <laughs> and I and I felt like, you know, that needs to be much more than that to be interesting, complex characters with change and growth when you're watching a movie yeah. or any story. So I treated it like a, a first draft, like, okay, this is a great start, but we need to like add much more. Yeah. So I thought, what if we treated this more like an origin story? What if he was a guy that had that kind of nobility, had that kind of sense of justice and like risking everything to do the right thing, but that backfired completely on him. So he, he sort of turtled, he went into his shell yeah. and he didn't trust the uh, humanity or any of its institutions and just wanted nothing to do with it, didn't want to play ball anymore. And uh, I thought that was a much more interesting place to start somebody and see what would it take for them to come back out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then for her, I wanted to make sure that um, she had, she, there was no way around that she's a princess, but what if she had the true duties and pressures of somebody that's going to take the mantle of reigning next? And the state of your city and the state of your world is only getting worse. And, she t and so from the minute she was born, she felt the pressures of that kind of responsibility. And so the thing she had to put in check was her own personal feelings, yeah. her, her own personal involvement in it. I mean, all I've ever known in my life is strong women. And, 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 and one of the things that's at risk sometimes that they can fall trap into is that they can't show their vulnerability yeah. and that they can get disconnected if, that, if they get too separated for too long. And I wanted that to be the thing that was at risk for her personally. Mm. And so that made her much more interesting. And that, then the two of them together you know, was like, in a, in, the, in a good way, oil and water. It was really nice. Fantastic. There's a phenomenal sequence in the film. I don't want to spoil it too don't much. Don't you spoil I'm not going to spoil it. Don't worry, don't worry. But were you uh, juxtaposed something that's happening on Mars with yes. a bleak uh, don't say anything. I'm not going to say anything, but it's very brave. Very brave decision to go into John's I, I feel like that's that was the key to his character, and that was the big thing to reward the audience <laughs> with for getting that far yeah, into the movie. Absolutely. Um, and as someone who's been hopefully hoping to make this movie since you were 11 years mm -hmm. old, is there not a, make it, see it. Not make see it, see it, or see it. I've or make only it. been thinking about making it since the, I started it five oh, years okay, ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, but so. you, you have these images that have been in your head for for decades mm -hmm. now. Uh, is there a danger when you come to make a film like this that you insist on those images coming to the big screen, or can you? Were you no, flexible? I was introduced up? into movies uh, through Toy Story, which was incredibly collaborative yeah. and incredibly. Um, Honest, a lot of constructive criticism from day one. That sucks. That's not good. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do this. And doing it again and again and again. So all I've ever seen is the product get better yeah. for surrounding yourself with the smartest people, the talentedest people. You, you, you want to surround yourself with people that are much more talented, much smarter than you, so that the, the, the end product will only get better. And just put, check your ego at the door. Okay. 
if, if, if the product gets better, then everybody wins. It's not about you winning for some personal agenda. Take yourself out of it. You're part of some collective goal that's greater than you. And that's all I've ever known since, since the beginnings of making movies with Pixar. So that's the, the philosophy I work under even when I got to do this. It wasn't some god complex. I surrounded myself from the cast to the crew like with people that were just so good that they could probably be left on their own and they'd make a great movie. And just let that collective you know, sort of start to raise the, yeah. the product. Fantastic. Uh, before we see the last clip, um, which is... Uh, an introduction to a, a character I think is going to become a bit of a fan favorite in, in a <laughs> He's way. He's a fan favorite yeah. when you read the books. Yeah. Uh, Carter's been um, mysteriously found himself on Mars. He's abducted by these green aliens who don't know what to do with him. They sort of encounter him when they're trying to get their uh, ritual of getting their hatchlings, their, their, the eggs of their babies. And so they just sort of infiltrate them with the rest of the babies. And they sort of put them in diapers like the rest of the babies and chain them up. And they don't know what to do with them because he just keeps jumping away. Yeah. And, um, and this, he wakes up in the middle of the night and this is, this is what happens. Where do we get one of those? <laughs> Everybody wants a Willow. I wanted a Willow the minute I read the book. <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay, let's have uh, some of your questions now. There are going to be some Rovi microphones going around. Uh, and there's a lot of people want to ask. You I, pick. I'll pick you first, and then you, sir, and then I'll go left and right. There's a lady here in the front row, right here. Hi. Um, it's an honor to be here and meet you, by the way. You're oh, it's an honor to be asked by you. Um, and I just wanted to, um, I'm starting to write my thesis on Disney and Pixar okay. uh, right now and their kind of cultural impact yeah. um, in America historically nowadays. Um, and how do you account... That makes me feel so old. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you account, what's your impression of this massive impact they've had and how they've shaped lives i i can't imagine my life without it it's weird um, um and is there still kind of a sense of what would walt do kind of in the disney studios i no, guess no that's a trap i think what trap? Walt would do is a trap um because soon it's going to start being what would steve do what would john lasseter do i mean it's like yeah, that's a trap people can fall into and the the key is finding the identity of who the talent you have in in, in the now i mean that's what we did at toy stories like who do we have and we keep reassessing that as the people change, and um, I don't know, you never, I, I, we just kind of hunker down and just do what we like to do. I honestly think that the thing that's worked in our favor is that we've kind of ignored the outside world and just made what we would make even if we never had to show it to anybody. <laughs> um, it's kind of the, what I would expect from any of the artists I love. I don't want them to be trying to guess my demographic or second guess or test me. I want them to just do what 
is their passion and their calling, and I'll buy their album or read their book or see their movie. That's what I, I don't want to be second-guessed. And so I, I respect the audience too much. We won't do that to them. I mean, you're, we're just going to make what is, drives us honestly, and that seems to have worked uh, all this time. So, uh, and it seems to work historically with great artists uh, that I've always followed, so I don't see the reason to just because it's a big budget and just because it's a, a movie from a movie studio that you have to lower your standards and be some sort of corporatized product. It, you should be an artist making art, you know? There you go. Thank you. Uh, is that going on in your dissertation, by the way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a gentleman right behind you there. First of all, thank you for being here. Um, sure, it's great to, to, to meet you. Um, I was at the Q&A back in January when Taylor was down at the Apollo. Oh. And I had a chance to see the other clips uh, that you, you shown. Um, and uh, I wanted to actually, uh, I'm, I'm actually from this province, by the way, um, <laughs> which I just discovered today from my friend here. Oh, God. Um, but uh, my question is, how did you find the difference when you were directing uh, from an animation to live action? and, and the big shocker was how little it was different, how, how similar it was. Everybody, everybody, when I got on set, would say, so what's it like to work with people? And I'd be like, well, wait a minute. I've never directed a computer in my life, and I've never directed an animated character in my life. I, I work with human beings. I work with fantastic artists that are special at their jobs. You know, fantastic designers, fantastic, basically, animator puppeteers, fantastic, you know, story writers. And... And so all the conversations I would have with them on any of the Pixar movies that I've worked on for where the camera should go, where the light should go, what the, how the scenes should play out, were exactly the same conversations I had on set or out on location. And that, um, you know, was, was really the big shocker. The only difference was how uh, hard it was physically, like labor-wise, to just be outside all day, standing on your feet every day for 100 days. I mean... I've had it lazy. I've been sitting in a chair for 20 years, you know, worth of movies. <laughs> so that was really the big difference. So was post-production a dream for you then? Like, just I can kick back now? No, <laughs> I missed. By the time I kind of got the bug by the end of it, I loved, okay. I realized, wow, I am an outdoorsy person. I never <laughs> knew this, you know, and I really kind of yeah. missed a little bit of it. Fantastic. We're all on the sequel. Um, yes, please. There's a gentleman in front row here. Yeah, with the glasses. Hi. Uh, hi. Um, yeah, the film, it looks great. Uh, do you worry that it's a 12A and a PG-13, right? Yes. Yeah. Do you worry that you're alienating the young audience, the families? Well, I'm just trying to be safe because there's a whole range of people that have different, you know, tolerances. To be honest, it's about the tamest PG-13 you'll ever, ever see, and it could probably justify being a PG. I mean, I don't know what the ratings are over here. It's a, yeah, um, But, um, yeah. you know, I, I wanted to just be more safe than sorry because the property is a lot of fighting and tension and intensity. Um, it's not necessarily gratuitous and gross or, you know, that, that kind of thing, but intensity can sometimes be um, a bigger deal for parents. And so I just wanted to make sure that, they, you know, they could make their own judge. But, you know, like, I know I have my kids, you know, I took when they were seven and eight to Jurassic Park, and then I had other kids that couldn't see it till they were 14. I mean, it's, it's, you have to be your own judge about that stuff. Fantastic. There's a gentleman right beside you, I think. Uh, hello, Andrew. Uh, why do you think people will be attracted to this story in countries where this story is not famous, like Brazil? I come from Brazil. Well, honestly, I don't expect it to be famous anywhere. I mean, I didn't expect anybody to know the property. I wasn't, I wasn't leveraging off of the knowledge of the book. I actually assumed nobody knew about it. 
what I was trusting was that if a kid in the 70s could just find this book and read it without any, you know, trailers, any kind of mystique about it, and just be completely consumed by it, that meant that the author found something mythic, something timeless about it that spoke to anyone. And the fact that every generation, somebody kept finding this book, it made me trust that if we could tap into those things that were mythic and timeless about it, then they would speak to anybody. It's the same instinct I've used on anything else I've done, whether it was Wally or Nemo or anything. I, I, again, I'm not trying to second, I've never tried to second guess who's going to see it. I think that's the wrong way to make art. Forget about the outside world. Just follow your muse, follow yourself. That's all anybody really wants you to be is honest and passionate. And why not 3D? Why not 3D? Sorry, just it was hard enough to make live action. Suddenly you're asking <laughs> me to ask another ball? I mean, I'm like, I wanted the film to work. Uh, so I tried to make it as, as un, you know, the least I had to learn, and I could just jump in and start making the movie, the better. I also didn't trust whether 3D was going to be around. I mean, I remember I started this thing five years ago. And I had no idea whether it would be more popular, less popular. So I didn't want to suddenly find myself holding it. So we thought we could still control it and make it great in post. So let's save all our dollars for then and make the decision then. That's great. Let's uh, swing over here. There's a gentleman right there. Yeah, Hi. Hi, Andrew. Um, first, can I just say that I think Wally is one of the greatest films ever made. So oh, thank you for you. Uh, giving that to us, honestly. Um, and I've always kind of been enamored by the way that Pixar work and the collaborative process that yeah. you guys go through. It's not for the weak. I was, I was going to ask, how, is there any kind of advice you can give? Because that seems to be something that's worked for you guys so well when other studios Surrounding don't... Surrounding yourself with people it. that are truly honest with you is not fun. And it's not easy to find people that get along after they've been so honest with each other. Um, but when you, if you can find those people, cling to them. Because that's the only way you're going to really improve your chances of tapping into greatness, I think. You know, I mean, I think everybody needs that group. Whether you're in a company or whether you're alone as an artist, find those people and surround yourself with those people. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, there's a gentleman right at the back there. If you keep your hand up, please, sir, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you. I came all the way from Delhi to ask you this question. You did? Yes. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. Uh, and the Taj Mahal. Um, <laughs> See, I, I knew you were in the audience. I wanted to ask whether this kind of a bridge that you make between uh, real live mm -hmm. filming and the computer-generated uh, uh, images, etc., will this be a new trend that will affect movie making in I the future? I think so. What a lot of people don't realize, maybe because your age or just because, you know, there's been so much information. When we came out with Toy Story, the entire press junket, the entire tour around the world, all anybody wanted to talk about was, will anybody sit through 75 minutes, 85 minutes of computer graphics? They never talked about character. They never <laughs> talked about story. I'm not kidding you. They never, all they want, they all said, will anybody sit through yeah. 85, 90 minutes of a computer graphics? <laughs> it seems ridiculous now, doesn't it? It's just fascinating. And we're finally at a place now where people are talking 50% about the story and 50% about the technology. I cannot wait for the day when nobody talks about the technology anymore. Nobody's talking about what lens did you use, what camera did you use, and that's all the computer is, is a tool. It's still only as good as the artist that wields it. It's a big, fancy pencil. And so the pencil's as bad or as good as whoever's using it. 
And it's the same with computers. So there's no magic pill, there's no magic feather. I don't care how fancy your computers are or how great your company is. Without the, it's who you have, not what you have. As long as it's a Mac. <laughs> he knows about the prize giveaway, I think. I've uh, uh, got time for a couple more thinkers. Uh, yeah. Hi. Um, I just wanted to. Wally is also one of my favorite movies. Doesn't have and, to be. Um, no, really, I, I cried uh, the whole way through. And um, you know, the artist obviously at the Oscars recently just got so much yeah. press for being the first silent movie in however many years. But really, Wally did it first. And I was just sort of wondering whether you you think that animation gets so much less credit in Hollywood, but but generally, and and that if you find that frustrating. It's always been a frustration. It's always been sort of unconsciously put a little bit at the kids' table. And believe me, we've been fighting since Toy Story, Toy Story to prove that it's all about the movie. And it doesn't matter what the medium is. Is the story good enough and will it hold up? But I, even that, we've learned, like, don't get distracted by that. Someday it won't be an issue. And will people want to pull it off the shelf and watch this movie? I mean... You've just got to be in it for the love of the movie itself and just know that someday it'll be on the shelf like if you're lucky with like Wizard of Oz or Singing in the Rain or Snow White and nobody's going to care what people were talking about then. They're just going to go, do they want to show it to their grandkid, to their great kid, great grandkid? You know, that's, that's the game I've always been in is not for how it does this weekend or next year. It's like, will people still want to show it to somebody years from now? And that's a different, it's like long-term investment. It's a very different way of thinking than the short term. And sometimes you have to give up what seems like the sexy, obvious thing to all the bloggers and all the tweeters and just go for, I'm in it for, you know, when you're all gone. I'm in it for, will you still <laughs> want to watch this? So. And it's 11 books. How many films do you think this could, this could yield? It could be 11 films. Yeah. I won't make all of those. <laughs> but I hope, you know, I hope we got the snowball rolling. I, honestly, yeah. as a fan, I was like... If this goes through different directors and different casts and so I, I, God bless it. I really just hope it can bring as much joy and sense of, of thrill and adventure and romance that it did for me reading the books. But you're working the second one now? This, this yeah, we or, planned all three yeah. together. Okay. So we've been always writing all three. So we're, we're getting prepped and ready if, 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 if somebody gives us the opportunity. And if not, I definitely have other things that uh, you know, are Pixar related. Well, you know, I'm not leaving Pixar. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Everyone breathes a sigh of relief. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got time for one last question. And you caught my eye, sir. So no pressure. Hi, Derek. Um, another question about live action versus animation. Like um, in animation, you can obviously endlessly shave your story, like your visuals no, and everything. No, no, you can't because there's a budget and there's a schedule. <laughs> <laughs> so there, you, you cannot keep doing it forever. That's well, some weird I, myth. I was just wondering, like, how much on set was improvisation, or was it most of it? As much as I could, okay. as much as I could, which was never as much as I'd like, because just technically to get things set up with people on stilts and be on that location, suddenly you're, you're running out of time and you got to make sure you can get the shots. And sometimes you're like, if I can just get two or three takes, we can move on. But whenever you could, I, tr I tried to let there be improv because I had the advantage of having real actors all the time in front of the camera who could just wing it. So would you also, com would you also combine it and maybe like motion capture ethics or is that maybe a bit... To me, it's far? just a tool. I, I, I don't care how you get it. It's at the end of the day, you still have to have a great animator and a great act. You have to have a great actor at the front and you have to have a great animator at the back. Anything you've ever enjoyed that you thought was motion capture had that. It never got away without that. The machine and the technology did not make the great performance. 
the pencil doesn't do the great performance. So. Well, thanks to Disney and Apple, of course. Thanks to you guys for Thank coming. Thank you all for coming out. Thanks to Andrew Stanton. <laughs> <laughs>